Well, in this passage, we see Saul of Tarsus breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord in verse number one. He was truly a man who was at war with Christianity and with Jesus Christ and with the way. The way is a term that's used in here, and it's, it's used to describe us. It's used to describe Christians. It was an early designation for those who followed the one who had called himself the way, the truth, and the life. So here we see Saul. Saul is at war with the way. He is at war with Christianity and Christians. And Jesus appears to warring Saul on the road to Damascus, and he has a word for him. And so the title of today's message is A Word to the Warring. And this word to the warring is the last in our short series on the words of Jesus Christ after the resurrection. Jesus said three things to him here. There's a lot of things we could talk about in this passage, but I want us to concentrate on the three things he said. He said in verse number four, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said in verse number five, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. And he said in verse number six, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Let's look at those three things just briefly this morning. First of all, verse four, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, at first glance, that might seem like an odd question, don't you think? I mean, it must have seemed odd to Saul. He had set out to eradicate what he believed to be a heretical sect. He was hounding heretics. Stephen, whom, over whose death he had presided in Acts chapter 7, Stephen had been a heretic in his mind, and therefore Saul had thought himself justified in participating in his death. And now he was hot on the trail of more such heretics. And he thought he was going to find some in Damascus. But when Jesus stopped him on the road to Damascus, you notice Jesus didn't say to him, why did you persecute Stephen? Would have been a valid question. He didn't say it. He didn't say, why are you persecuting Christians? Or why are you persecuting my church? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers, or why are you persecuting my disciples, or why are you persecuting my brothers and sisters? He said none of those things. He said, why are you persecuting me? And that's an amazing thought, don't you think? Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And then he explained it more fully in verse number 5 when he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He was very clear. What Jesus was saying, in effect, was what you do to my church, Saul, you do to me. What you do to my children, Saul, you do to me. To my brothers, my sisters, whatever you do to them, you do to me. You're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. It's an interesting reminder, isn't it? An interesting reminder to us when we're tempted to minimize the importance of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Or when we're tempted to minimize the importance of his church in our lives. It's a popular refrain in 21st century America, and I doubt it's really new with 21st century America. We like to think everything's new with us, but there's nothing new under the sun, Solomon said. But it's a popular refrain that, you know, you you can be a perfectly good Christian and, and ignore the church and not attend church. But hear the words of the Lord. Why do you persecute me? What you do to my church, you do to me. When you persecute my church, you persecute me. When you minimize my church, you minimize me. When you ignore my church, you ignore me. And some might be thinking, well, how in the world are you getting that out of this passage, Pastor? What in the world does this passage have to do with church and faithfulness to those kinds of things? But, but I would suggest that Jesus is simply talking here about harming other believers. Any type of harm to another believer, he would be saying is harm perpetrated on him. Few of us, I would hope, harm other believers by breathing out threatenings and slaughter against them. 
Anybody done that this past week? Well, I hope not. That's what Saul was doing. But the application to us is, I think, any harm toward other believers. We minimize the importance of other believers in our life all the time, don't we? We ignore other believers in our life all the time. We harm other believers in our life by withholding the spiritual gifts that God has placed within us specifically for their benefit. And we hold it back and don't exercise those gifts. And Jesus said when we do that, we do that to him. And I toss that out for your consideration this morning because I think we have a very real danger at Friendship Bible Church of allowing that to happen. It's always a danger, but it becomes more of a danger every year right about this time. Every year it's summertime. There's everything in the world, every myriad kind of temptation that could drag people away from faithfulness to God's church takes place. But this year, in addition to summertime, we have something else going on, don't we? We have a building project going on which could easily distract us, could easily pull us away from the things of God. And so let's listen to the warning here this morning and remind ourselves Paul is later going to warn the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He's going to tell them to be careful lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And we're not ignorant of his devices. So let's take that warning this morning as well. Do you see it? Saul thought he was simply silencing a heretic. But Jesus said, no, no, you were persecuting me when you killed Stephen. Saul thought he was merely chasing dangerous men and women when he breathed out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. There's an application to you and I. A reminder that we need to hear again and again. What we do to each other, we do to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's something good or something bad. In Matthew chapter 10, he said, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. In Matthew 25, the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So the first thing he had to say to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? The second is in verse number five. Verse number five, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. That's a very interesting phrase, don't you think? It's a very picturesque phrase. Jesus was saying, in effect, to Saul, Saul, I have been working in your life, and you have been ignoring me. And that's been hard on you, hasn't it? He was saying, in effect, I've been convicting you of your needs, Saul, but you've been fighting against that conviction. That's been hard for you, hasn't it? I attended Kent State University a long time ago. In the dark ages. You probably don't realize that there was a Kent State University that far back, but there was. And while I was attending there, I recall there was a, a young girl that I was friends with, and I cannot remember where I met her. I had actually known her before we, we went to Kent, but the thing that stands out in my mind whenever I remember this girl is she was the type of person who would get very close to you when she was talking. And then whenever she wanted to make a point, she would poke you in the chest. <laughs> And I can remember times we'd get into big heated discussions. I remember one time at the student center, standing at the bus stop outside of the student center, and she got all upset about something and was in my face and just poking me in the chest. And do you know what my response was to this behavior? It was to back away, to try to get away from it, to try to get her to stop doing that, to avoid the poking. You see, an ox goat is simply a stick with which you poke an ox. That's all it really is. If you wanted to get the ox to move, you poked it with a stick. 
and it would usually move to avoid the poking, and you could direct it where you wanted it to go. Sometimes, though, there would be a stubborn ox that would kick whenever you tried to poke it with the goad. It would fight back, refuse to take the direction being given. And that's what Jesus said Saul was doing. He said, I'm sitting here, I'm poking at you, I'm trying to get you to follow my direction, and you're kicking against it. You're resisting. And apparently, based on Jesus' statement here, he had been prodding Saul for some time. It was not just something he'd done once. He had been convicting him of his need for salvation. And we don't know what God was using to do that, but we can make some intelligent guesses, can't we? I mean, the, the, the martyrdom of Stephen had to have followed Saul everywhere he went. It had to have been part of that prodding. He had watched a Christian die, not in fear, but in triumph. Not spitting vengeance toward his killers, but repeating Jesus' words, the words that Jesus said on the cross, Jesus' words of forgiveness. And maybe he was looking right at Saul as he said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. That had to have prodded Saul. Saul had not just seen that, though. He had also seen Stephen's blood-streaked face looking up into heaven and with joy say, look, I see, I see Jesus standing on the right hand of the Son of God. Saul was a Pharisee. He believed in the resurrection. And that must have really spoken to him. That must have been a goad, prodding him. And I'm sure the prodding didn't stop with Stephen even. Saul was throwing Christians in prison right and left. He was condemning them to death. And I'm sure there was more than one that faced that experience as only a believer can and had to be a goad to Saul. One commentary that I read suggested a couple of more goads that might have been poking Saul. Perhaps Paul had also struggled with the emptiness and weakness of Judaism. Maybe he was, he was forced to bring it into consideration. And his own inability to meet the demands of the law. Maybe that was working on him. We could probably come up with all kinds of things. But the fact is, Jesus said it is hard for you to kick against the goad's song. It's a natural tendency, isn't it, for us as, as human beings to fight against God's invitation. God's invitation of salvation specifically. And Saul was doing that. And I wonder how many here today are in the same boat. Are you kicking against the goats? Are you kicking against his influence in your life? It may be in the area of salvation. Maybe something else entirely. Maybe the Lord's convicting you about some area of service or surrender to his will in some matter. Is he goading you? Is he poking you? Notice what he said to Paul. It's hard. It's hard on you to kick against the goats. Well, he said another thing. Look at verse number six. He said, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. You know, Saul's mind must have been just awash in questions here. I mean, the question that most obviously must have been at the very front of his mind was, how can this be? How can this be? He's standing there face to face with Jesus Christ. And the thought had to come to me. How, how could this possibly be? Jesus standing in front of me. Jesus was crucified. Perhaps he had even been witness to that. I don't know. But he certainly knew he had been crucified. He had been taught at the feet of Gamaliel. Theology just oozed out of, out of Saul. And all of it was now being called into question. And so questions, questions, questions. Everything he had ever learned told him that this was not even remotely possible. And yet here it was. Here was Jesus standing in front of him. He was hearing Jesus' voice. He was watching Jesus' lips move. He was looking at Jesus' face. How can this be? 
But notice that Jesus didn't address any of his questions. Did you notice that? Whatever questions he might have had, Jesus was not interested in answering any of them. All Jesus said to him was two things. He said, get up and go into the city. And then he added one little thing. He said, oh, and it will be told you what you must do. Get up and go into the city. Explanations can follow later, Saul, but for now, you need to act on what you know. Get up and go into the city. I wonder how many people miss out on accepting Christ or miss out on serving Christ in their life because they have questions. And until they get every question answered, they're just not going to believe. Maybe kind of like Thomas in the upper room. Until they can get all of the puzzle pieces together, until they can fit everything into a nice little box, they're not going to believe. There's a scene in one of the Indiana Jones movies. I think I mentioned another Indiana Jones movie here recently. I must have Indiana Jones on my mind. But there's a scene in one of the Indiana Jones movies, and I'm sure you remember it, where Indiana had to get from one side of the chasm to the other. He's standing in the doorway of opening of a cave, and he's looking down into a, what seems to be interminable depths, and across this wide expanse, there's another cave that he has to get to, and there's no way to get from here to there. But he has been told that the only way to get from here to there is to take a step of faith. And so if you remember the scene in the movie, he finally screws up his courage and he steps out into what seems to be nothing but air. And he thuds down onto rock. And then suddenly he looks and he sees that there actually is a rock walkway that goes all the way across there that had been hidden and camouflaged before. But when he stepped out in faith, suddenly he could see it because he took that step of faith. You know, we'd all like it, wouldn't we, if Jesus would come to us and lay out a detailed explanation of every day of our lives from here until he comes back. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be wonderful if he, he would tell us all his plans, all his expectations for us for the rest of our lives? Wouldn't it be not wonderful if we knew everything he wanted of us and everything that was going to happen to us? If we could have all of our questions answered up front before we decide to step out for Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great, God? Yeah, say amen. But it doesn't work that way. The Christian life is a life of faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 10, 38 says the just shall live by faith. Psalm 37, 23 says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. That's the way it works. When Jesus calls, we step out. We take a step of faith. We answer what we know. Even if we might still have questions in our minds. But when we've obeyed that step, he reveals a little bit more. We take that step, and he reveals a little bit more. Step by step by step. Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Well, there's three things Jesus said to Saul. Let me suggest real quickly three thoughts that come to mind by way of application as we consider this, because I think we could apply this three ways. First of all, I would suggest this. Anybody can be saved. Anybody can be saved. Now, I realize our sermon today is really not about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I know that. We're really talking about the things Jesus said to him. At least that's what I'm trying to talk about. But nonetheless, I think this is maybe the most important application that we get out of this passage. Uh, Even though it's really not from what Jesus said, but just from his conversion. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus shows there is no such thing as a hard case. There is nobody who is too far gone for salvation. Most of you know that I have someone in my life who I pray for constantly and who I have witnessed too many times and who is a, uh, a great concern to me because of his hardness and his unwillingness to listen to the things of God. 
And I often agonize over whether it is, you know, my approach. It is something wrong in, in the way I present the gospel. Because I know sometimes I say things wrongly. Doesn't mean I say the wrong things, but sometimes I say the wrong, say things wrongly. Maybe I turn him off. Maybe I agonize over my methods. Maybe I'm, I'm not saying things the right way. Maybe, I don't know. This is the hardest of cases. And I can get very, very discouraged about that. But then I read Acts chapter 9, and I see that Saul of Tarsus could be saved. And if Saul of Tarsus can be saved, anybody can be saved. Glory. That's an encouragement to anybody who has an unsaved loved one. Every Wednesday night on prayer meeting here, we pray for unsaved loved ones. I, I can't remember the last time we had a prayer meeting where somebody did not bring that up as a prayer request. And it ought to be there every week. Unsaved loved ones, we all have them. And here we see If Saul of Tarsus could be saved, anybody could be saved. So don't give up. Never stop praying for those loved ones. Never think that they are such a hard case that they cannot be saved. They might be the next Saul. Because if Saul could be saved, any could be saved. Second application. When he speaks to us regarding salvation, we should respond. When he speaks to us regarding salvation, Salvation, we should be responsible. Don't you wonder, what would have happened to Saul of Tarsus had he chosen any other path here than obedience? He didn't have to obey. What if he had chosen to think about it a while? Here's Jesus standing there in front of him, and he says, ah, you know, I'll, I'll give that some thought. Jesus, I'll get back to you. What if he had taken that approach? Or worse yet, what if he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got rabbi friends, you know, back in the school of Gamaliel, that are just going to give me nothing but grief over this. I can't possibly go down this road. You can't expect me to do that. What if he had done something like that? What if he had not responded to Christ on the Damascus road? There's nothing that forced him to do it. And of course, nobody knows. It would just be complete conjecture on our part to try to guess these things. But I think it's probable he would not have had another chance. I mean, what if Zacchaeus had refused Jesus' invitation to dinner when Jesus walked by? He's up in the sycamore tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to dine with you today. What if he had said, nah, not today? There wasn't going to be another time. What if blind Bartimaeus, who was sitting by the highway side begging, had refused Jesus' call when Jesus called to him? Jesus was only passing by that way one time, and there was not going to be another chance. See, when Jesus calls, we need to answer. There is no guarantee that he will ever call again. If you are under conviction, you need to answer. You know why? Because there's no guarantee that that will ever come again. Too many are like Felix who put off trusting Christ, even when under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 24, as Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time, and when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. And there's no evidence whatsoever that convenient season ever came. Ever came again. Saul could have said, you know, now's not a good time. I want to think about it. I'll consider your points. But he didn't. He got up. He went into the city. Jesus had called to respond. And I think one of the applications is if you have not yet responded to the call of Christ in your life, if you have not yet trusted Christ as your Savior, you need to do so. You need to do it today while he's calling. You need to do it without delay because you have no rational expectation that he will ever do it again. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Well, one last, one last application, and with this I'll be done. When he speaks to us regarding service, we should respond. When he speaks to us regarding service, we should respond. I think the application that when he calls, we should answer, can be made in both of those ways. 
it certainly applies to salvation, but it also applies to serving him. And so is he calling you to some type of service? You ever feel that pull? You ever feel the, the Holy Spirit getting a hold of you and saying, I, you know, I, I, I want you to do this. I want you to serve in this capacity. Do you ever hear some need in this church or in God's work somewhere that uh, you just feel like, I think the Lord's calling me to that. If that's the case, don't delay. Obey. Get up and get into the city. I have known believers, and probably you have too, who are on fire for Christ. But when such an opportunity came, they would not step out. They would not obey in some area of service. And eventually that fire cooled. And they're doing nothing for Christ today. You can probably picture people like that. You could probably look around this room and you could probably see places where people used to sit. You can probably think of faces and names that at one time were on fire. And they're not here anymore. Their fervor cooled. And they're no longer here. You know, I think God's word spoken to mankind right before the flood are very instructive. You know what he said? He said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. He's talking about a very specific thing there about the sin of mankind at the time right before the flood. But I think there's a principle there. The principle is that God will deal with us. God will call us. God will offer us opportunity to serve sometimes over and over. But his patience has limits. And if we continue to say no to God, eventually he accepts our answer. And eventually he says, okay, no it is. Years after this experience on the Damascus Road, the Apostle Paul shared this story. He would tell this testimony in various places. And in Acts chapter 26, he shared it with King Agrippa. And as he was telling King Agrippa, he added an interesting little detail here. Uh, in uh, Acts chapter 26, in verse number 19, he told his testimony. He told what had happened on the road to Damascus. And then he said this, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was not disobedient. Can you say that regarding his offer of salvation? As he called, asking you to trust him as Savior. Can you say, I was not disobedient to that call? Can you say it regarding his call to serve him? Has he called you and asked you to do something? Serve in some way, in some area, and have you answered? Or are you kicking against the goats? One man said, one of the first marks of our conversion is that we obey Jesus Christ. We might even call it the first mark, except that faith itself is the first evidence. Are you obeying Jesus? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If you are disobeying Jesus, you're not his disciple. And if you're not his disciple, you're not saved. People who have heard the voice of Jesus Christ just do not ignore it. And Saul of Tarsus did not ignore the voice. He could say later, I was not disobedient. Can you? And you. The songwriter said, We never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows, for the joy he bestows, are for them who will trust and obey.